Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. You're very welcome indeed. This is show number 79, and I'm Adrian Hobart. And I'm Rebecca Collins. You sound a bit down. No, no, not at all. A bit hot. Yeah, okay. Welcome to the show. The Hobcast Book Show is from Hobet Books. We are UK independent small publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. And? The other one. Suspense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never, never wears out Mountain that Goat Erotica. Maybe, maybe that's where we're missing out. Welcome to the show. Uh, for those of you coming to us for the first time, welcome. Where have you been? Where have you been? There are 78 other episodes which you should uh, go and have a good listen to. But uh, what we do on the Hobcast Book Show is we do two things. We, we speak to wonderful guests and we talk about our lives. Random things. Random things. Our publishing lives, our family, everything. Nothing's on the off the agenda, as I said in the uh, rather grandiose introduction to this week's we don't actually podcast. have an agenda, really, do we? we no, just... we've got a few news articles in front of us, which we'll get to in a minute, but we ought to just mention who our guests are. In fact, we've just found out, as we were looking around <laughs> the room, that one of our guests, we have two copies of the same book by her. This is just what it's like living here. We have so many books. We have over 4,000 books in this house. Well, let me just give you an indication as to how overwhelmed we are with books. I went to Ikea, a uh, heck of a trip, actually, because the M6 was all blocked and the M5 and everything else. So I went cross-country through Wolverhampton to get to the Wensbury Ikea on the edge of Birmingham. You don't need to go on the M5 to get to there. No, but I'm saying the M5 was blocked, so it had not effects. Oh, it effects. fed into the M6. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the whole thing was a disaster zone, as it always is on a Friday. So I went down to go and get some shelves, and I uh, bought a whole load of Billy bookcases, which are filling the car at the moment. They take such an effort to build. Who was I? Billy? I don't know. I don't know why they... Well, they say... It's not a very Swedish name, is it? No, but... Around the world, IKEA claim that a Billy bookcase is sold every three seconds. Oh, there's another one. Yeah, and another. <laughs> um, and so uh, I bought a couple of those just to try. I wonder if it's going to be enough because we haven't actually got any more space to put more well, bookcases. Well, that, that is my worry. Well, where are we going to put these Billy bookcases? I don't know. Anyway, that's that's our problem. That's that not is. the listeners' problem. Well, we were saying Holly Watt is one of our guests this week, and the other is Sarah Saltoon. Both are leading journalists. Uh, Holly has worked for The Times. She has worked for The Telegraph. And her main character is a journalist. Sarah Saltoon has been a CNN field producer in war zones and all sorts of trouble spots around the world. And the question we wanted to ask both of them when we were at Crime Fest um, was a straightforward one, really. I mean, I have always had this thing. But when you have a little knowledge of a, of a field of uh, of anything... It's very quick when you read something, you know, see something on TV or you watch it in a film or you read it in a book, just how inauthentic the depiction of a particular industry, job, trade 
is. And for me, it's journalism. So I've been in broadcast journalism for most of my life. And I'm always horrified at just how badly journalists are depicted and how the trade is, is, you know, actually how things are done is depicted. Yeah, they're always not exactly a bad guy or woman, but kind of slightly sleazy. Oh, they're sleazy, they're devious and all that sort of thing. And and to be honest, yeah, look, I, I've probably done one or two things in my time which I was not that proud of. One or two. A few things. Well, no, I mean... We'll talk about the Blue Peter Garden later. Yeah, OK. But <laughs> here's, here's the issue, is that, you know, everyone has a compass in terms of morality, I suppose, in journalism, um, depending on who you work for. And being with the BBC for as long as I was, we always had a, I suppose, you know, we could afford to be a little bit more... Uh, aloof and reticent to go to the depths that some people were you know we wouldn't pay for a story for instance that's something you just don't do <laughs> whereas tabloid journalists would have a checkbook and say oh i'll give you five grand for the uh, kiss and tell story on so and so you know that sort of thing that's not that wasn't the game for uh, us bbc don't do that no one doesn't do that um but there are times when you have to you know uh well, let's put it this way. To get access to certain stories, places, I've, I've told fibs. I've, I've blagged my way past security. Have you really? Yeah. Yeah. I think the most, uh, well, there's a few examples, but I suppose the one that I, I remember most, um, it seems so so minor now in the, in, the, in the scheme of things. But Chichester Conservatives were choosing their next candidate. You had to pretend to be a conservative. Something like that, mm. yeah. Yeah, I did. And um, basically, so the, the significance of this was that Chichester, as you can imagine, for those who know the south of England uh, and that part, it's a very well-heeled part of the, of the country. It's where Goodwood is. Does that come from the fact that posh people have nice shoes? No, almost certainly. Anyway, okay. um, it's a very wealthy area and it's a very conservative area and it's one of the safest seats in the country and this was on in the run up to the 1997 general election and it was literally 6 weeks before um uh, the election was due and so um whoever got selected was guaranteed to be the next mp mhm and so i blagged my way into the selection thing even though the journalists were banned surely you just had to be yourself which is a sort of posh doesn't well that's what i did yeah i mean i basically <laughs> put a blazer on I, I wore a tie and i said oh i'm sorry I, you know i haven't got my membership card with me but you know so jerry knows me i thought think it's bound it. to be a jerry no it's bound to be, oh jerry right yes of course come uh, in and were you well healed were, were you, your shoes nice uh yeah i was looking as smart as i can at that time brass buttons all that sort of malarkey i look i looked a typical Tory boy. And I got in and I got the story and then I got the interview with the candidate who went on to become a very significant member of parliament. Not a minister, but one of the most... Um, this was a guy who was in the city, very, very bright bloke. And uh, he ended up being uh, the chair of the Treasury Committee for, for years. A guy called Andrew Tyree. And, uh, but he was, oh, posh as posh can be. In terms of uh, intellectually aloof. Anyway, that's my digression. Was he wearing chinos? <sighs> no, I think he was wearing a navy suit that day. Oh, he blimey! Was very, very, you know, um, had uh, had that typical sort of slightly 
real creamed comb over oh, hair quite like tight not even floppy no anyway um so that was uh, <laughs> he was bespectacled a very serious person uh, and tall just like me and uh, anyway i digress so i feel that journalists get a bad treatment in all forms of depiction in fiction and i mean it's the same story that that cops are always saying you know the police procedurals are not a reflection of real life so that's what we wanted to debate. Sarah Saltoon, Holly Watt coming up later. So I really have dragged that out a bit with my anecdotal nonsense as usual. I do apologise. Some things do not change. No, they don't. We'll get into some news. And um, I think the first news story we've picked out is potentially very important for the whole of the UK book market. And that, <laughs> You're and bigging as, it up. I'm bigging it up and I'm giving it to you to tell us more about it. Oh, I thought you were talking about the one you were going to say. No, no, no. Okay. no. <laughs> Um, okay, so Ingram Spark we use quite a lot for printing um, a number of our titles. So Ingrams are w- the world's biggest book distributors and print-on-demand publishing service. And currently in the UK, the main um, wholesaler wholesale operation is Gardeners. Most people have heard of Gardeners or anybody who's yeah. So any to books publishing. that go into retail, basically in this country, go through Gardeners. Yeah, um, I think the, the major publishers have their own systems, um, but Besides that, gardeners. Yeah. We use gardeners as well. Well, Ingram have decided they're going to start a UK wholesale operation, which will put them in competition with gardeners, which is a good thing. It's a really good thing because there used to be a company called Bertram's that mm-hmm. went bust in 2020. Yep. So since 2020... There's only been the one There's only been gardeners, really. Um, so this is a good development, and we don't quite know yet how this is going to impact on us, but it probably will in some way. Uh, it might mean we can store... Uh, books that we print with Ingram. Maybe they'll start doing short print runs. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know, we'll have to see. That's going to be fascinating. Um, it's good to see some, you know, that some shift in the UK marketplace in that field. I don't know if you've just caught that. There's a very loud cow. We have a herd of cows back with us in the field opposite the barn. And this particular cow cannot shut up oh, all mid- night last night. Midnight. So I was just falling asleep as well. And this cow, that one. That there, one, yeah. Um, she, it's a she, isn't she, it? She, yeah. It's a she. She was almost, I could almost count to the nanosecond when she was going to moo again. Absolutely. She was, was regular as clockwork. And it was like, if you were a rugby fan from the 70s going, oggy, 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 oi, oi, oi. <laughs> it was like that. She was doing the oggy bit and the, the rest of the herd were doing the oi, oi, oi. There was just a cacophony was, I mean, we normally get it at dawn and we're kind of cool with that. But last night, we were struggling to sleep anyway because it was hot. We were struggling because there were lots of stressful things happening in our lives in that 24-hour period. And then you get the blinking, this particular one cow. Yeah, that's a fly. That's a fly. <laughs> um, making an absolute racket. I actually wanted to go outside and just sort of go jump over the fence and just pet it, calm it down a Yeah, because it, it, it was quite eerie and distressing, wasn't it? Was. It was. Yeah, I, think so... some, I, th- I don't think... That cow is particularly in good form. And then we, I fell asleep and then they started up again at Hoppers 4. Yeah, I didn't get woken by them then. But oh, I, I didn't. Did. It took me forever ever to get to sleep. Always does when it's hot. Anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, let's get into another story. This is an, another big story potentially in the United States. And this has really shocked me, actually, because I haven't seen this one before. But one of the things that any company like ourselves, is, you know, basically we are dealing with intellectual property. And so we sign an author who's written a book, their copyright, but we're essentially signing the rights in different, you know, 
uh, for different platforms. Oh, goodness me. Off they go again. <laughs> um, the fact is that, uh, you know, that might be audio rights, translation rights, whatever it might be. But it all boils, boils down to copyright law being um, uh, essentially honoured. Now, in the United States, there's an outfit called the Internet Archive, or IA for short. Um, and they are being brought to – there's a, a lawsuit. It's been running for a couple of years, and publishers, the big, some of the big publishers in the United States, are demanding a summary judgment against Internet Archive because what they've been doing is scanning books, tens of thousands of them, and then making them available free for their subscribers – online i mean it's it's you know to to me it seems like copyright theft at uh, one stage um this is a process called controlled digital lending uh, right but the trouble is that none of these authors or publishers are getting any revenue from that's it at all. where it breaks down doesn't yeah. it? yeah and the uh the, the publishers who are bringing this this group action against ia uh, allege that the company makes about 30 million dollars a year and that's off the back of other people's mm, intellectual property not, not and right. other people's work. Um, so this is this is rumbling on in the United States. It has big implications, but there are, there is a lot of piracy going on. Um, you only have to go to YouTube if you want to listen to an audio book that's say on Audible. You'll probably find it on YouTube, where someone's put it up a seven hour file of audio just, with a with a single still. How do they get covering. away with that though? I don't know. I mean, the, the the point is they always claim, you know, well, I'm you know. I, I, I don't own, own the copyright for this, but I'm doing it in, in fair usage or fair dealing. And does... th- this was always an issue in my old job. Um, so, for instance, the sports rights are very, very jealously guarded. And my news colleagues never understood that, you know, you were only allowed a certain number of, you know, you can only screen uh, a certain piece of action six times under an agreement in the UK. Mm. Um, and then after that, you had to pay for it from the rights holder. But what they would do is, oh, if there was a big sports story, they'd just keep running the footage saying, oh, it's fair dealing. Uh, and that's not the case. No. Intellectual uh, property law is fascinating. It is fascinating. It is. I, th- I often wonder why I'm not an intellectual property lawyer because that would at least make us well, money. Well, I, I did once go to a lecture. You when did, I was doing didn't my you? master's, we had a lecture on internet, intellectual property law. And I think I needed to lie down in a darkened room after that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Final story that we'd like to point out. Which is the one I thought he was bigging up. Well, no, no. <laughs> this is, uh, again, I think this is a reflection, this story is a reflection of changing times. Uh, but this story is that the Blue Peter Book Awards have been axed. 22 years they've been running. These are uh, book awards that have been won by some of the biggest names in um, in children's literature particularly in the uk obviously because blue peter is a bbc show if you don't know it a magazine show that's been running for 60 years michael morpurgo Catherine rundle oliver jeffers and liz pishon i love oliver jeffers yeah they have won uh that award in the past but the the fact is it's 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 a combination of factors the book trust have actually been administering this award uh, and they've decided that with their limited resources now that they're going to focus on encouraging um, readers, young readers from disadvantaged backgrounds to read more. So spending money and time on the book awards is something they don't feel is beneficial anymore. The UK publishing industry has gone, oh God, another award gone. So the Costa Book Award has gone, which is the second most important, was the second most important 
book award in the UK after the Booker. Um, it's uh, you know, it's it's again another thing where um, you know the, the impact of awards is not having the same thing. In in, in terms of Blue Peter, though, I mean, I, I have friends who've worked there um, over the years, and uh, the fact is that the whole children's TV empire at the BBC is shrinking very very fast to the point of almost non-existence and blue peter one stage remember where you're young it was it was tuesdays and thursdays yes. and then they went to three times a week and it was still a massively popular show all the way through our youth all the way through our youth and even my boys loved blue peter right in fact josh has a it's a very peter worthy bad. very worthy show but full of fascinating stuff and you know you do learn a lot you learn how to make an action man shop yeah, but also you know how to clean pigeon poo off the Nelson's column, which very came, important knowledge. Which John Noakes did without a harness. Can you imagine? He shinned up. He had to go over an overhang, the parapet where Nelson, and then you know it, just the health and safety implications of the things they got up to. How to hibernate a tortoise? Yeah, so that was very important. Yeah. Um, and we lived our lives through the, their pets because I never had any pets. Norman, well, we well we did. So but I loved Shep. I loved Shep. I wanted to marry John Noakes. Did you ever see the clip? It's one of the saddest things I've ever watched on television. Was when uh, they reunited the classic cast of presenters, which is Valerie Singleton, Peter Purvis, John and Noakes. John Noakes, on a on a, one of those whatever happened to shows on a Sunday afternoon, I think it was. And the presenter asks, and um, how is Shep? Oh, don't. And John Noakes says, cry. he died last week. Yeah. And then he burst into tears. It's one of the most, I think, I mean, at this point, uh, John Noakes sadly had started to show the signs of um, early stages of dementia, which gripped him in his last decade. And there were all these stories of how his, he and his wife bought a yacht and went around the world and lived on this boat. And he became too infirm to, to to run it, and he got lost several times. The people had him to send out um, because he was out in thirty five degree temperatures in Malaga or wherever, um, and they thought you know he was going to expire. So it was really sad how he declined. John Noakes, my absolute childhood hero. Me too. I did. I wanted to marry him. He's the loveliest man. I wanted to marry him. Apparently, it was really difficult to work with because he was an actor, and Peter Purvis was really good at winding him up. <laughs> And John Noakes would be the one challenging Biddy Baxter over every script. <laughs> I'm not saying that. And then he had to play this, and he wanted to be a serious actor. And of course, he was a brilliant comic because he had this conversation with Shep the whole time, didn't he? Mm. Damn Shep. You know, it was all that sort of Yorkshire. He was a very humorous bloke. That's he why was. we all loved him. Yeah. Anyway, the Blue Peter, uh, I mean, the fact is that Blue Peter's, I think, only on once a week now. And it's on a, a digital channel rather than on. Uh, mainstream tv anymore it so is sad it is really sad it was a great concept and it's still got legs but you know the money's not there anymore to do it so those are our three stories let's get into our interview we'll talk about the week that we've just had and the one that's to come um which we you know with bated breath we look at um but uh let's get into our interview so we're talking about journalism how it's portrayed and it's it was delight to be at uh, crime fest in bristol a few weeks ago meeting holly watt and Sarah Saltoon. Well, we are deeply honoured to be joined by two fantastic uh, writers and journalists here we are. on the Hopcast Book Show. We're in the uh, uh, the lobby of the hotel here at uh, Crimefest. On pink sofas and pink chairs. And we're joined by Sarah Saltoon and uh, Holly Watts as well. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. 
Uh, now, the reason we, we asked you on, I mean, we, you shared a panel with one of our authors, Anthony Dunford, and it was about society and, you know, the, the issues within crime fiction and dealing with that. But what struck me sitting in the audience as uh, a former BBC journalist uh, was, you know, you both have very, very high-level experience in newspapers and in television of how it really works and how people actually work in, in journalism. And it strikes me that one of the things that really doesn't do the profession any favours is the way it's actually portrayed, both in television and in fiction. Is that something, Holly, that you you've, that strikes you? No, definitely. I mean... I suppose so much crime fiction is written from the point of view that there's police procedurals, and within that, quite often, there's a sort of ghastly journalist somewhere in the mix, sort of being deeply irritating and getting getting things wrong, and you know, just generally being sort of the pariah. Um, and it is, I've always found it interesting how different the um, the perception of journalism in um, either books or films is from like American journalists where they're perceived as you know you see like spotlight or state of play and all yeah. that and they're sort of heroic superstars <laughs> with like and then like the British equivalent where it's just some ghastly person breaking in through the back door in and, the Mac <laughs> yes and often doing something which is like demonstrably wouldn't happen under the sort of various press codes so you know yeah definitely it's there and Sarah I mean you've worked internationally and clearly press codes apply differently around the world but it seems to me that there seems there is this sort of uh, paintbrush approach to journalism which is yeah you know they do things that you know shouldn't be allowed and and there's no no sort of ethical behavior in, in in general journalism portrayals well, I suppose I, I sort of both agree and disagree with you. Like, I actually think the biggest failing from the arts community is they don't involve journalists enough. Like, I don't know whether you feel like I do, but there aren't enough books that feature the journalists as the protagonist. There's a gazillion police procedurals. There's even more of a gazillion legal dramas. But actually, the one profession that is dedicated to getting to the truth of the matter is just not typically, apart from until Holly came along, um, <laughs> does not, not, there aren't routinely journalists at the heart of these sorts of mysteries, which really bothers me, because lawyers tend to want to win the case. Yes. It's not always the truth of what happened. Police detectives want a solve. It doesn't always mean it's actually what took place. Journalists aren't motivated by anything other than the truth. Now, we can have that argument, and I'm sure lots of your <laughs> listeners <laughs> might, might like to have that argument, but the the motivation of the profession is the facts and I think it lends itself to fiction it lends itself to the fictional space in that way quite well um, I would agree with you that there does seem to be an awful lot of pastiche involved in some of the representations of journalism that we've seen across the arts and that really winds me up all of that said I don't know that journalists are the most lovable of species like I know maybe Holly you'll agree with me but when you spend a long time in and out of hostile environments you, between yourselves, you make light of some of the most awful things, but it's, it's to process them. It's not because you actually think they're funny. You invade people's privacy, you go to people's funerals that had nothing to do with you, but you're doing it with a belief that there's a higher purpose at stake, and that doesn't come over very effectively in fiction. And it's actually quite difficult to create characters that your readers can identify with on an emotional level in that way, and I think that's really challenging for the arts because... The hard-boiled police detective, you know, is trying to put away the baddies. You know, the hard-bitten legal professional is trying to jail them for life. What's the journalist trying to do? They're just trying to tell everybody about it. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. quite a difficult thing to get right. 
And I suppose also there's, in journalism, there's a sense of competition, which is also relatively unattractive. I mean, police, you know, police are working together as a team. Mm-hmm. Lawyers, I mean, admittedly, that's sort of much more, you know, two sides. But, you know, whereas journalism quite often are perceived to be out for themselves and their story and getting there first, yep. uh, no matter what that takes. Uh, and definitely, you know, quite often that's not for the benefit of the people around them. It's just because they're competitive kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting thing because I think uh, newsroom culture... Uh, you've worked at the Guardian, the Telegraph, and and obviously had some, you know, had some massive stories with you know MPs' expenses and and, and such like. Uh, but I've always found, I mean, the BBC, you, you would think that, um, and we used to, we were about fifteen years ago, we we had a campaign with internally where everyone had to be reminded we're one BBC, we're better when we work together. Because everyone stabs each other in the back, trying to climb up the pole. I mean, in television, you'll know this, Sarah. You know, it's uh, you know, you, you measure your success in, in terms of the screen time that you get, and you, know, you don't want to see that's how some people behave. And uh, it's well, an the industry. News in the world didn't there used to be like ferocious competition between like the features desk and the news desk? Like absolutely, kind of you know, they were fighting for that front page every week. And obviously, that didn't necessarily bring out the best behaviour in the industry. No, no. I mean, I, I absolutely, you know, I experienced it all the time. And there would be people coming in from my team going, "Well, why, why has he got the, the lead?" St-? I mean, literally. The, the, well, like the, children then. Well, <laughs> I, I, I quote the, the current BBC Sports editor, who would always spend three or four hours after a news at ten arguing why did Andrew Gompertz's culture piece get ahead of my you know brilliant piece of sports journalism uh, you know for the last slot on the program um, it's you know the, the people cut, cut each other's throats in, in this game I mean I don't know if that's changing in, in newspapers it's certainly in my game <laughs> I think I think all I would take issue with is it I think in some levels of journalism you definitely do see that and you tend to see it particularly on the television side with um, the anchors who have their own name shows and mm. you know how real estate is allocated in that way where you don't get it as much and I'm sure you'll probably agree with me is when you're on the front line oh, yeah. in those sorts of hot spots with a bunch of other journalists from a bunch of other networks you really stand on each other's shoulders there like yeah. you're all c- competing but you're not really you're trying to make sure no one gets shot yes. you're trying to make sure that no one is put under undue pressure in Baghdad at the height of the Iraq war back in the sort of mid 2000s early to mid 2000s every, once everyone was kicked out of their Palestine hotel everyone was living in the same fortified houses on the same street yeah. behind the same three rings of steel and everyone partied together, everyone looked out for each other. And you don't have that. You, that, yeah. that really wasn't a problematic relationship at all. Is it, is it then a phenomenon when, when there's... Let's put it this way. If in those circumstances you're facing um, really big challenges, you know, life and death challenges very often, uh, deadline pressure and all that sort of thing, and there is that camaraderie when you're on the road, but back in the office... That, that people have the time because, you know, nothing, you know, okay, someone might miss a deadline and get criticised, you know, didn't quite, the edit didn't quite make the 10 o'clock or whatever it might be. The fact is that in the absence of real danger and real jeopardy in the workplace, they find it by <laughs> attacking each other. I, I just wonder if that's sort of... I'm not sure. I just think there's a greater awareness from anyone based at HQ of the commercial side of the business and they can strip the emotion away from it. So it's a real tension you can find between the field crews and the editorial crews on the desk, which is 
they don't understand. Yes. And the truth yeah. is, they don't. But they understand something different, which is the rigour of putting together the newspaper, the rigour of putting together the programme. And there are many paymasters, and conscience is not one of them. Or at least, it is certainly not necessarily as high up the pecking order as many people feel it should be. It's a commercial enterprise, and you will see that much more clearly at headquarters than you do necessarily yeah. in the thick of it. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak from a commercial point of view because I was BBC, but yeah, I take your point. I mean, it, well, I mean, there were different pressures there. Again, you don't have the commercial pressures, so again, you find reasons to, to, to basically grind against each other, which is, you know, none of us worrying about where the next pay is coming from because the licence fees covered it. <laughs> I think, I mean, from a sort of portrayal of... Um, professions Um, you know that when you have of course there's a whole spectrum of behavior within journalism as there is probably in in the law and uh, the police forces as well but you know journalists would probably much prefer it if it was focused on the end of the profession that was like kind of doing heroic work in Ukraine you know the Christina Lambs Mm -hmm. the kind of you know that's a group of journalists whereas quite often the the fictional portrayal of it tends to be the other end of the journalism spectrum just because that's a kind of almost like a cartoon character that you know the the easy baddie as it were Um, and of course you know in if you, you could have a spectrum behaviour in law as well, but in crime fiction, for example, you're probably going to be seeing a sort of, um, you know, slightly better behaved version of the lawyer and like you know, sort of a sort of somebody who's getting to the bottom of a really horrendous crime because it's crime fiction. Um, I suppose by <laughs> just thinking about, you know, something like um, uh, the slow horses books, yes. um, you know, yeah. that is a, a sort of outlier in that one isn't it because you have you know sort of comedy version of <laughs> well, not comedy version but the kind of like more caricature version yeah. of the spy thing but no, I think yeah obviously there's going to be a range of, of journalists and they get portrayed in different ways in terms of your own fiction Sarah then when you've approached I mean because your, your your book uh, most recent book The Shot uh, is from the perspective of that relationship that you used to have in the field between you know camera person and producer and 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 reporter, you know, the, the, the pressures that each of those roles has. Um, how did you set about trying to make that authentic but still keep the fictional... I mean, because I think it, there is a, an, an intention and, and pressure on all of those people for different reasons, but um, did you just go for it as, as a, as a tr- you know, truthful portrayal or did you, were you tempted to, to fictionalise it in any way? Well, so the first thing I should say is that my book... The shot is a total work of fiction. There's no one in it, nothing. There are shades of everything that happened did happen in a certain way, apart from a couple of obvious exceptions. Um, but there is no one in there uh, that, wh- where there are any similarities with real, real people that's other than incidental. Um, the emo- once more for the lawyer. The, yeah, the, lawyer. the <laughs> but the emotional truth is very real, and I didn't have to look very far for that because I was in all those situations. Mm. Um, and I wanted to render them as authentically as I possibly could, because even though the work, even though the book is a fiction, its themes are profoundly true, and I wanted to ask my readers a very profound question, and mm. so I could only do that with 100% of an emotional truth at its core. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose the sort of complex answer to your question is, I, I, it's quite autobiographical in that way, mm. and I would have felt very uncomfortable writing about theatres of war that I hadn't visited myself. I also still feel very uncomfortable appropriating other people's experiences because there will be people who recognise their own experiences in a lot of what I've written and maybe question why I thought they were mine, even though I might have been there in a peripheral way or in an integral way. 
And I can only apologize for that because I have not meant to make anyone feel uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, you know, we all have experiences that we feel are ours. And that's what that's what's so remarkable about the world of fiction is you can bring those experiences into a fictional space to explore them properly mm. and otherwise what's the point of fiction well i think you can't help doing that anyway whatever you're writing about you're going to bring something from your own experiences in some way aren't you well you have to don't you I yeah mean, that's the, that's the only <laughs> i mean that's, that's the true <laughs> well, it, well it is isn't it i mean you know I, I suppose that's what it drives down to i mean because we all the panels i've been on uh, sat in have all asked that same question, which we're all asking is, is it appropriate for me as a such and such and such and such to write about something but else? Then you could say, I, I couldn't write a book from your perspective. You, we're both female, we're both the same, um, you know... Well, not with as much authenticity, but no. you, you can... But That's as a, a, very, a very fundamental problem about journalism, isn't it? That yeah. you have, you know, people going from London or somewhere in the UK to a country to report on it and then mm. come back again. You know, I mean, that's always been an embedded problem with how journalism operates, that you don't have people telling their stories from where they are. You have reporters going there, being paid quite a lot more than those people are to do. You know, it, it's always been a problem. Um, and, it, you know, it's very hard to see an, an obvious way around it. Um, in all circumstances um, yeah so the appropriating is also a problem <laughs> yeah. I, actually I suppose on the issue of appropriation I do find it quite problematic though if we are in a position where you, you as an as a artist yeah. or as a creator yeah. you're, you're being told by an industry that you can only you, they say write what you know but am I, are we really being told not to explore other perspectives in a fictional space i mean i don't i think that's the whole point of fiction and if we can't do that then like i might say to you for example i'm a woman and you're a woman and therefore i could try and put myself in your shoes and write from your perspective i don't know that that's appropriation unless i was being factual about Mm. giving you your own name talking about your own personal details i i'm probably getting myself in hot water bringing up a book but american dirt um, written by Jean Ann Cummings. It was an incredibly famous book, which takes the Mexican-American migratory yeah. experience. And it was extremely controversial in the end in the United States because it's yeah. written by an Irish-American. Yeah. And there was an allegation it should have been written by a Mexican-American yes. or at least a Mexican. Mm. And whilst I understand the point, I'm not sure that I feel that comfortable with the idea that you can only write from your own vantage point. I think that's... It restricts you, doesn't it? Well, totally. I think this is a, this is a debate that has raged far harder in the United States than it has to hitherto I think it's, it's really valid in the fact that there, you know, there has been sort of built-in problems within the publishing industry for a very long time that you know, certain books get promoted, certain books don't, certain books get published, certain books don't and I think a sort of awareness of why that's happening is vital and important mm. you know. but I think at the same time you do get a problem that other issues are all conflated together and you know, it's, it, is, it is a huge complicated area Yeah, it's a, it's a soup of problems isn't it at the moment and I think, I think the, the line coming out from everybody speaking that I've heard say you know, is that are you telling us that we cannot use our imaginations and that's what it boils down to it's, you know, if you're writing with authenticity about the human experience and with an emotional uh, you know strength and authenticity surely that buys you some credit if you like with the readers and you know I, 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 and the wider world I, I, I just think that you know we, we all as humans experience different things but when it boils down to it fear is universal well we don't want to go back to sort of a Jane Austen model of her two inches of ivory and writing only about exactly the social class you know and exactly 
you know, the women, you know, I don't think she ever wrote a conversation of two men in a room that a woman wasn't present because she would never have been, you know, yes. involved in that. Yes. And, you know, we don't want to narrow ourselves down to that level because, you know, frankly, a couple of hundred years of <laughs> female emancipation has led us away from that, one hopes. Um, but, you know, it, at the same time, it is about being respectful and learning as much as possible and, and being aware of the potential for causing offence and doing everything you can to avoid that i think that's the key isn't it do your research if you do your research and you get as much information as you can about what you're writing about then you can do it well I, I, I think this comes to journalism again because i mean a lot of journalism which is the unfashionable bit is research let's be honest it is fact checking it's making sure you're talking to a broad set of sources and developing those sources in the first place there's a lot of legwork that goes in before something arrives in print or on on the screen uh, um and you know, it, but there are plenty of people we probably have come across in our different uh, organisations for whom they had one story they wanted to tell and they attracted this, did the research that supported that line. And, uh, you know, rather than, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, they're outliers within journalism, but that's nevertheless the fact. So if you're an author doing research, you can sometimes just do the research that proves the point you were trying to make, perhaps. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, that's a question. I mean, you know, do you, do you um, face that when you're doing research, or are you challenging yourself to be as balanced as possible? Crikey, I don't know. I'm just. I mean, I'm trying to think. At the moment, I'm deep in this my fourth book, which is about <laughs> hedge funds and gambling. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that I probably I'm certainly with gambling. You know, I mean, it's a sort of terrifying industry. That, yeah, you know, absolutely. That, and yeah, but I mean, it's very hard to think of a good thing about the way the industry works so in that case I think my, my research certainly has taken me in a, a sort of not not entirely positive route um, but yeah I'm trying to think, how about you Sarah? Um, well just on a prof- when I was a journalist I certainly never encountered anyone doing anything other than balanced research mm, for any stories sure. that they were putting their name to as a fiction writer I don't think there needs to be balance in anything at all frankly provided you were authentic so if I was writing a book about hedge funds which I'm afraid Holly you are much braver than I am (laughs) but you want to get it right because otherwise it's not believable so I've written a book about journalism and I know I've got it right well she says arrogantly (laughs) but I you know it was my day job for a very long time so I I don't know that there's any research that I necessarily need to do to complement 15 years of life experience but if I was right if the the subject matter I was very careful with the references I made to the Iraq war the Afghan war Mm -hmm. the conflict in Sudan in in the Darfur region of Sudan because I want people I want I need to speak to my readers I need them to believe me so I can't put something in the wrong year because then how will they believe me? Yeah, and you as know, soon as somebody writes to you and says, oh, I think you'll find... And then in my first book, In the Source, it's, it's very loosely based on what the, the allegations and what has now been proven to have gone on in Rochdale, Rotherham and Telford. And so I was echoing much of that, and I needed that to be accurate. So I did do a huge amount of research on that. But the actual circumstances of the narrative I made them all up I mean I just I just made up what sounded good yeah. and yeah, that yeah. is the beauty of fiction and I love it yeah. <laughs> yes. it's definitely like as a reporter for years you know banging on people's doors being told to go away whereas well, you know, I opened it today yeah my <laughs> fictional journalist is much luckier than that and they knew everything I needed to know it was brilliant yeah, there was no bad sound <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated though, that you're breaking into two worlds that you're perhaps not that familiar with in terms of the, the hedge funds and, and the gambling scene um, and the, the companies there so have you you know making the same sort of approach as you did as a journalist uh, in terms of 
finding somebody who's prepared to tell you what how it works and, and, yeah, and cultivating basically. their sources. Yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. With them, um, particularly with the hedge funds, I've been talking to sort of various hedge fund managers who've made like unbelievable amounts of money. Definitely wrong career path, going into journalism <laughs> and writing. What? <laughs> um, but I find it really, really fascinating. Sort of useful alternative data in um, in in those fields. Are they are they the sort of people who, because they think that no one's touched them yet, so. They're, 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 are they open or are they guarded? It's very different when I'm approaching as a fiction writer versus as I, I wish, you know, these people would not mm. speak to me with my journalism hat on. No. Um, but I think they quite enjoy the idea of talking to a journalist, uh, to a fiction writer, because they can just tell me everything that goes on without any sort of... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of them are like, do you want to uh, thank you at the back of a book? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, it's a fascinating world, the way this huge amount of information is being transferred and analysed and, and, you know... Yeah. I, I found it really fascinating. <laughs> and it, oh, it is. I mean, my, my son's 21, and uh, you know, every conversation starts with, "Oh, I had a really good hacker at the weekend. Got 200 quid from a five quid bet." And, you know, and la la la. <laughs> and it's like he's totally fallen for it. That I mean, I, I sort of I can't remember exactly the point when I thought I'd you know base this on gambling, um, but yeah, it was just gradually becoming aware of just how. How it was a thing. Like we were watching, we were in the pub watching rugby, yeah, um, yeah. and it was just like you suddenly become aware that for a group of people, and they are usually men. Um, you know, it's no longer really interesting watching it unless you've got sort of skin Some, in the game. Basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. And I have visited a um, a gambling. I don't know how you describe it. I mean, you go there and you literally would think it was a hedge fund. I mean, it's like dozens of people with very serious maths PhDs writing yes. models that you know they're essentially at this point. You know, the sophistication of it is mind-blowing the speed mm. of reaction you know this is the idea that going in and slapping a fiver on Chelsea to win at the weekend is up against these people who are literally <laughs> created like you know years of research into every single person yeah. on the pitch what they've been doing in training you know how you know even like things like oh for every 50 miles away from their home ground they'll be like two percent less likely to you know it's, it's Blimey. incredibly <laughs> sophisticated yeah it is the, the, the modeling is, is I'm thinking my youngest to be good at this <laughs> he's got that sort of mathematical statistical brain yeah but he hasn't got the the, 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 the darkness <laughs> oh I don't it, know he does a good death stare that's true he does he does he does. but you never know looking at this group of people that they were gambling on football it doesn't look like that at all yeah um, but they are and they are on the other side of the bet <laughs> and in terms of your research uh, um, you know so you're, you've been a producer in the field which is such a break because you I've got a number of friends who do that and uh, your chief cheerleader, you're also the person, you know, sort of, right, we're doing this, you know, making the decision, uh, which drives the, you know, you have to sometimes, because some sometimes. People, <laughs> sometimes people are going to be reluctant. I mean, the talent might not want to stand in that particular place, or... The talent always wants to do it. Yeah, <laughs> this amuses right. me. You refer to the talent. I've never heard this before. Well, okay. I mean, I think we've, we've touched on this, and I suppose we should look at our Hobeck authors as the talent, but we wouldn't... Tre- I mean, no, our babies, not our talent. No, okay. No, 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 we're, we're, we're your talent. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, this is the issue. I mean, the, the BBC is totally totally wrapped up in making sure that the talent get everything they want at any, any one time. There is, you know, there, no one is going to challenge Gary Lineker uh, at BBC Sport if he wants uh, a, a sandwich flown over from Bristol to Salford for his match. They'll do it just to keep him happy. Um, I don't know if that... <laughs> Not on sound, my watch. <laughs> doesn't sound like the sort of thing that happens in, in CLM. No, no, it really doesn't. Um, and so, so I was actually... Compar- it was a comparatively short amount of time that I was a field producer. Mm. It was probably across a period of two or three years, and it was quite a long time ago now. But I think the overall 
environment has remains the same if a lot more challenging now because of social media which I never had to deal with which yeah. is a yeah. great delight frankly because you can be so distracted by what's in the Twitter sphere which is just a bunch of people talking about stuff they think yes and no one necessarily Not what being, they know yeah. exactly so that can be very distracting particularly in kinetic situations where you need not to be distracted mm. and you need to just sort of be listening to eyewitness journalism. Yeah. Um, but I think the talent rarely don't want to do anything, <laughs> <laughs> ultimately. And, you know, you, you were more trying to pull back rather than push forward. Really? Yeah, right, right. Maybe that's the difference between, you know, sports broadcasters who like it nice and comfortable and, and cosy and, you know, frontline proper... You know, I say proper journalists, but you know, <laughs> but you know, that's that's a little unfair. But I mean, you know, the thing about sport is, you know, ultimately, unless you're in, um, as I have been twice, in a stadium uh, disaster in Africa, you know, your, your life's not really in that much jeopardy uh, if you're covering sport. You might but, get hit by a ball. I mean, <laughs> I have lost one colleague to something terrible, but then he decided he was going to, you know, show how it was done, and then um, it didn't work out in a motor car. So, uh, you know, these things happen. But um, I, I always wonder, um, in terms of, you were talking about the, the social media poison that, that, that has really ruined proper journalism because you're too busy trying to get the tweet out before everyone else does. A lot of people are. But the other thing is, the live and continuous experience, which, of course, CNN created. Uh, that is to say, you know, reporters popping up every single hour from their location and telling you the latest. And that has changed the nature of journalism hugely in television terms because actually you, you, you're putting people on the ground who are just, there, you know, they, they actually haven't got much time to go and find out what is happening because they're stuck in, on location. Well, well, that's only what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may look like that, but in actual fact, there's an engine room making mm. sure that they do know what's happening yeah. and making sure that they are going out and you know seeing it for themselves but it's been criticized by you know the likes of the the, the older guard in the bbc martin bell of, of his generation you know d dealing with sarajevo and, and previous wars and kate ad both saying this isn't real journalism like i used to know it you know which was they would go out and speak to as many people as possible get you know shoot stuff that other people weren't getting and then put a package together and, and put it on the air rather they hated being stuck in one place well yeah so whilst I don't wish to take issue with Martin Bell or Kate Adie and I don't think I probably am going to but <laughs> you know standing and talking into a live camera day in day out is no one's idea of journalism that said if you can maintain interest in a story and keep the spotlight where you want it, there's certainly value in that. Oh, yeah. And if you're in the position as a major international news network to deploy the number of people that you need to deploy to ensure that someone can, hour by hour, update the story, then I think you're doing an enormous public service. And the model has evolved, certainly at CNN, by deploying show teams so that the programming right. is anchored from the field. Yes. And the correspondents then go even more remote and pipe into those programs and are usually off the leash for most of the day putting their reports together. Yeah, that, that's a much And that better is model. the sort of journalism yeah. that Martin Bell and Kate Adie would stand yeah. heavily behind yeah. and refer to as the kind of journalism that they did and they yes. support. So I think the model has evolved in a certain way. And I just want to clarify something I said about social media, which is that... It, it is it, the noise is very distracting, but what is enormously helpful is it. It is eyewitness of sorts, sure. so it is. It does advance matters in lots of ways. The problem is the verification process and yes. the panic mm. that ensues because something is on Twitter, 
and that is really really counterproductive because something is on Twitter mm. it's yeah. suddenly you have to maintain is, is that something true what is that something about where is that something going and you have to keep a much cooler head than let's say you needed to 15 or 20 years ago when you just you just didn't have that level of noise no, or competition right. in right. the background it just didn't happen as quickly so you had more time that's, to work that's out very, where very you were true. going well I, I guess it's the same in in the newspaper industry which you know the last 10 years 15 years uh, has become print i mean you know in terms of the money uh, where <laughs> generating from from online coverage where speed is also essential you know the live blogs and all that sort of thing has that did you notice that sort of transition because in in broadcast it's more immediate but oh yeah i mean hugely i think because i joined the sunday times in 2004 i think yeah. you know and it was just I mean, back then you had to go into the office to check your email, which just seemed yeah. bizarre now. You know, was, yeah. I mean, just everything's changed in that, like, almost two decades now, which is a slightly depressing figure. Um, no, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost unrecognisable as an industry. Um, and, of course, there's massive pros and massive cons to that. You know, on one hand, certainly there's been stuff that's come out of Ukraine, for example, that we wouldn't have got uh, 20 years ago. Um, but on the other hand, you know... <laughs> on the other hand, you get sort of awful stuff that happens that you... you that you can't really control in the same way—not control—that's the wrong word. But like, you know, that that yeah, exactly. And it's sort of that there's very much a sort of panic-stricken can be a panic-stricken urge to get on top of this stuff when you know actually, as you say, cooler heads would be more helpful. Yeah, I, I, I've seen the, the the headless chicken thing that happens. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Uh, I mean, within the newsrooms I know, it was that thing of got to get something on this, you know, and and mm. and, and, and the running around and the, the heat that's generated by something that possibly turns out not to be true, which happens a lot. Mm. Um, it's it's it, living on that level of adrenaline. And it's, I, think, I find that, I mean, I personally, I, it wore me out by the end. I couldn't do it. Absolutely. And I have no idea how certain journalists manage it. You know, they wake up with the day programme, go to bed, you know, long after news night, whatever it is. I mean, I just don't. I remember like in the 2008 election when I was in America with Washington Post for that summer, yeah. um, you know, and just having that very clear sort of feeling that there was no possible way of keeping up on top of it. That, you know, up until that point, maybe you could sort of keep across all the different things that were happening. You know, I mean, of course you couldn't, but you could have the illusion of it. Whereas at I felt it was 2008 when it very much accelerated, put you on the point that any person could be essentially, you know, that, that saying, Renaissance man, mm. obviously women can be that as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, this idea that you could be an expert in all things, whereas now it's impossible to be an expert even in, you know, one element of politics anymore, you know. Right. You know, so it's just that extreme amount of information flowing around the world. It's mm. fascinating, and that's sort of what I'm trying to get across in book four with the, yeah. you know, that's the thing. But it is also just impossible to be on top of it at all. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, I want to ask you, as authors, um, the contrast in pace of life. I mean, you, uh, <laughs> you know, life as a family and all that stuff aside, but actually the craft and the writing must be such a, a relief to be able to do something a li- it, um, with a little bit more. It's hard slower. to call it a relief. I loved my job and I right. miss it every day. Yeah. And there is so much of me that wishes I was still doing it much as I love my new flexible career and exploring all these things in the fictional space at my leisure effectively um, but I don't know that it's a relief it's a, the journalism is, is such a privilege you know any type of journalism and I miss it so much that I find myself sort of investing my fiction with everything that I sort of still wish I was sort of doing um, so it's very difficult I also think 
as journalists, it, this sounds so... I don't know how to put this without sounding like a total egomaniac. <laughs> and, of course, if any of my friends do hear this podcast, they'll just say, well, you are an egomaniac. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, people care about what you think and people are interested in you asking them questions. When you're a writer and yeah. you are just sort of alone with your head or you're in environments like we are now where we're talking to mm. each other, no one gives... That bleep <laughs> no one cares what you think you know you're just you're just making stuff up for effectively your own entertainment and trying to do it as yes. well as you can and that's quite wearing after a while so i don't know that i'm finding it a relief it's just a very different it's a very different yeah there's absolutely. lots to love about both worlds do you i mean i, I just one more question on that then i mean in terms of um speed of turnaround i mean i i find that if i'm in the flow then i can write a good few thousand words it happens very rarely but the fact is because of the discipline of having to write stuff so quickly for broadcast uh, you know it, well I think it helps and hinders me because I yeah. can turn stuff to a deadline but it won't necessarily be good good <laughs> and so you sort of my agent will say to me well this is just rubbish and I say yeah but you you know oh right okay yeah. <laughs> but it's a week it's a week ahead take, an, take, take another week on it and yeah, I'm like oh yeah. okay you're giving me another week yeah you know take some time over this and really invest and oh right I thought you just wanted me to get it done <laughs> you know so the instincts are quite count they, they work against each other a little bit mm. um and also, I don't know about you, Holly, but I sometimes, I do find myself going back into journalist mode thinking, well, that's not exactly how it happened. And then thinking, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, because you made it up. I'm just going <laughs> to change that. You know, and then at one point, my agent said to me, you know, there's no compunction to stick with a work of fiction just because it's worthy. You know, you, it's, it's got to be good. There's no excuse for it not to be good. Just change it. And I remember thinking, why have I not done that? <laughs> yeah. Why have I not done that? That's a really good piece of guidance. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think also that, you know journalists straightforwardly you know we're quite used to being told like right well 800 words on this by 4 o'clock and you just get on and do it so yeah. there's not the fear of the blank screen which I think some writers are affected by whereas we just get on with it because yeah, that's <laughs> what we're used to I was going to say from a broadcast point of view 800 words luxury because we, we'd have to get it done in 60 to 90 to 120 depending on how long the piece is I mean it was no you know, no absolutely but, but you know that's yeah I mean I, I but I mean as Rebecca will tell you <laughs> the times when when inspiration strikes and i'm actually writing that level of, of is very 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 rare yes and so i vacate the kitchen and i get the cat out and the children out so that i think make the most of the moment <laughs> oh, i'd love that <laughs> so um the, we didn't um, perhaps forewarn you that there would be one element of this interview which is perhaps the most challenging you'll ever get because as a regular thing on the Hobcast Book Show, we have something called Rebecca's Random Question. And it truly is random. Uh, so, I'll give it the build-up. Yeah. If you don't mind. Rebecca's Random Question. Firstly, to you, Sarah, I would like to ask, um, if somebody gave you a bagel, what would be your perfect topping? Peanut butter. <laughs> Excellent. The reason I ask this is because we were at a cafe this morning. And they had a bagel on the on the on the um, on the menu, yeah. On the menu, well, yeah. But there was only one choice, and that was salmon and cream cheese. Cream cheese, and I and I thought, no, 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 I don't want fish on for breakfast. No, thank you. I want the cream cheese, but I chickened out of asking. Well, they didn't have them bagels in the end, so <laughs> I've still got to find one. But anyway, and, but peanut butter's good choice. Yeah, you I, like peanut butter, don't you? Uh, yeah, I had a phase of it recently, didn't I? Yeah. I went through about three jars in about two two <laughs> days, and then, like I always do, I gave. <laughs> changed onto something else. Um, yeah, but that's attention Mine deficit Mine will be cheese and ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> and Holly, 
you have a random question? I do. Oh, okay, we'll do it again. Rebecca's second random <laughs> question. So I think everybody has their go-to comfort TV when they're not feeling very well and they're in bed. I know it's a rare treat when you've got work and family and everything, but what is your go-to comfort TV? Oh, right now it was probably Bridgerton. Oh, really? Yes, yes. <laughs> Love so, me a bit of Georgian kind of romp. <laughs> um, and also I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy in my time. I'm definitely like a Shonda <laughs> follower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, my, mine is a little house on the prairie. I have oh, all wow. the box sets. <laughs> I'm just sort of going, really? I didn't know this about you. All Gilmore Girls, that's the other one. We marry next year and I didn't know this. This, is, this might good to get it out now. Yeah. Like, you know, well, it get... might change the dynamic But it's yours the godfather, isn't it? Oh, wow, uh, that, yeah, that's I... contrasting. Well, yeah. yeah, it's very different. Uh, Let's hope we're not ill at the same time then. Yeah, Maggie and Arthur, you can't... You know, that kind of stuff. I love it. I absolutely love it. And uh, Well, I think, if nothing else, for a writer, something like The Godfather, the greatest... You know, handling of narrative structure over, th- you know, certainly the first two films, brilliantly but, done. But surely, if you're ill, you don't care about narrative structure. No, yeah, I just, you know, I just do my Marlon Brando. <laughs> no, I'm not feeling very well. Don't you just want to watch people gambling over yeah. prairies? I need soup. I need soup, and I need an orange soup. You know, <laughs> I've got a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit Shylock there. Sorry. Uh, right. No, well, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, we, just to, as we wrap up uh, this fantastic interview, uh, just remind us which books uh, you're representing here at uh, Crime Fest. So I, um, I'm, I've written the Casey Bendix series, which is To the Lions, The Deadline, The Hunt, The Kill, and the next one's out next year. Um, and, yeah, it's about an undercover investigative journalist called Casey Bendix. And I have written The Source, which came out last year, uh, and The Shot, which has just come out, and they're just two standalone thrillers about journalists trying to do the best job they can under the most challenging of circumstances. But they didn't have to face Rebecca's random question. They did not. <laughs> no. That, that could be that, the next book. That's in book three. <laughs> could be. Sarah Saldoon and Holly Watt, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Who does... Who? I'll do it again. Who says we don't do depth on this show? Who would dare to say we don't do depth on this show? We do depth. Yeah, that was. I mean, that would have that would have sat quite nicely in a front row slot on um, Radio Four, wouldn't it? Deep sea okay. diving, <laughs> deep sea podcasting, deep sea podcasting. Yeah, I loved that one. Yeah, it was one of my favourites. Well, I say that about all of them, but <laughs> so that's our. Oh gosh, I've just dropped the machine and better not switched off. Is it recording still? It is. Uh, just to, to let people know, I mean, many of you will expect this your, this podcast to drop on a Monday morning, wherever you are well, around it... the world. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't record properly yesterday, so no, we, we got this, the, is this is our second two. attempt. Yeah, um, occasionally we have technical issues, um, otherwise known as dead batteries. Yeah, um, <laughs> most unfortunate. But uh, we are alive and well and on air with the Hopcast Book Show. So thank you to Sarah Seltoon and Holly Watt. We better explain what I was referring to in terms of last week. We uh, we were separated for a week, weren't we? We were. Cue the sad music. Um, I was in Anglesey with my mum, my brother, my sister and three dogs. And you were here. here with Aki. I don't know where she is at the moment. Um, She's probably she, asleep. Yeah, somewhere. Somewhere um, a little less hot, perhaps. But the fact is that, yes, we were separated and we were trying to run the business from... Remotely. 150 miles yeah. apart from each other or whatever it is, 120 miles. Um, 
I found it really hard to be without you, truthfully. It's very quiet here. Uh, well, I mean, here it's very quiet when there's no other humans and you just got a cat to talk to. Mm. It can be very quiet. Now, I had the opposite experience because we were in a small cottage and so I was with people and dogs from 6am till 11pm. Mm. And even from 11pm to 6pm, like I was a, sleeping in a room with my mother. <laughs> you like a little bit of solitude. You like the option, at least. Yeah, so it, that was a little hard. I loved walking to the beach with my brother and my sister and their dogs. Absolutely loved it because they, they'd go straight in the sea. They swam in the sea. They loved it. And Can I just ask an important practical question at this point? Is that pasty burning? Or has, has, has your eldest son gone and got his pasty out of the oven? Um, well, he hasn't come down, so... Is it due? It must be. We, I mean, we we could do the second bit from scratch while I get it out. No, I mean you can. I'll keep talking while you go and sort that out. <laughs> right, I'm just going to go get a pasty out the oven then. Well, yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to mention that we have a whole. You know, wait for me to switch the microphone on. Oh, sorry. Now you can go. Go be gone. We have a huge collection of audio books that uh, we have recorded with the wonderful talents of the likes of Robert Dawes and Alison Morgan, and indeed, um, yours truly. Enter a world of great stories from Hobeck Audiobooks, from authors including Mark Whiteman, Linda Huber, Malcolm Hollingdrake, Essie Shepherd, Ollie Jarvis, A.B. Morgan, and Robert Dawes. Tamara Sullivan once more gave up on the book in her hand. She leaned back in her seat, closed her eyes and prayed that the two-and-a-half-hour flight would bring less turbulence than the last few months of her life had managed to generate. Lottie's hands fought their way back to his hair. With a yank, she almost removed an entire clump. Stop the bloody car now, DC Bradshaw. That's an order. I squeezed the steering wheel to stop my hands shaking and lean forward to give myself the clearest view of the road. Last week, I was looking forward to a holiday. Last week, I had a future. She dreaded the answer to her next question. But why me? You must be aware that I haven't accepted any work for three years. You'd never request someone who'd been out of the game for so long. Unless... She stopped. Unless I had some special skill. Daria leaned over to kiss Evie's damp little forehead, then jerked back in horror as a long, deep horn blared and headlights from an approaching lorry swept through the cab. A single, sickening scream left Daria's soul as Evie's rucksack scratched across her face. Betancourt waved a languid hand. Later, he pulled away the cover. Working like a camera... His detective's eyes took in everything. The woman was young, probably early 20s. Prissy, Hobeck Audiobooks. We know the power of great storytelling. Yeah, we do. <laughs> you say that every time. <laughs> I know, I do. I know, I'm very predictable. You are back. Pastigate has been solved. Yeah. Um, just before we go into sort of details of what we're going to do next week uh, to come, uh, I just wanted to uh, flag up something that uh, one of our cohort, Malcolm Hollingdrake, has, has been organising and uh, we are sponsoring, which is Noir at Harrogate Library. It's being held on September the 17th this year. It's between 12.30 and 4.45 in Harrogate Library. 
believe it or not. And uh, we have uh, the, the joy of not only sponsoring it, we will be there bringing the podcast from that uh, event. But Ollie Jarvis of Genesis Inquiry fame will also be one of the guests, which uh, also uh, is uh, including J.M. Dalglish. So lots of fantastic action there. Yeah. So uh, we recommend that highly. We shall be there. We shall be there. And we'd like to see you and, you know, tap us on the shoulder and ask for a Hobek badge. We might just have a few left. (laughs) Well, just (laughs) tap us on the shoulder and say hi. Yeah, we'd love to. We'd love to. Um, as indeed, you got a lovely email this morning. I did. I did get a lovely email. So I sent out the newsletter a little bit late, actually. It was, um, I usually do it Sunday night, but just completely. No, yeah, last night descended into chaos, didn't it? So our lives. Yeah, we just had a lot of things to deal with. So I didn't have enough space for the newsletter. So I sent it out. Kids. <laughs> Stop it. I sent it out first thing this morning about seven o'clock while I was waiting for everybody to get ready to go to school. And I got a reply from a lady called Dorothy. And Dorothy said that our newsletter, she, she receives many newsletters, and our newsletter is the best that she receives, and she Aww, loves it. That was really sweet. It is a very good one. I don't know. I just, it's, what stream of consciousness, it just comes out. It does. Well, like so many other things. Um, yeah, stream of something. Anyway, uh, that's that was, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, Those little moments make my day. Uh, yeah, it's lovely to get feedback. And, of course, please feel free to contact us on our Facebook page or email or, indeed, through our website, www.hobeck.net. We'd love to hear from you. Any which way you fancy. Yeah, absolutely. The more, you know, it, we're a community. And uh, for those people who buy our books and get into them and our authors and all that thing, we, you know, the whole thing... It's um, we're a bit of a family. Sometimes we have the odd rail, like we did last night, within our own family. But occasionally, it's um, you know we we'd like to think that we're a friendly place and uh, you're part of the community by listening to this show. Absolutely, it's the Hobcast Book Show. Um, so the week to come. Now it, it's kind of um, it's great to have you back. Me. Yes. It's great to be back. We have a a shed load of things to achieve. First, number one thing we need to mention is that we have a new book coming out on. Tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, as we record this on the Monday. So the Tuesday from Sorrow's Hold is out from Jonathan Peace, the second in his series. And yeah. um, the first one, which uh, has, you know, Dirty Little Secret has gone absolutely crazy. It's been a great, great um, success so yeah, far. it's doing very well. Getting some great reviews, as it d- richly deserves. This is, again, another um, brilliant book. Um, same setting. Same cast of characters, but with a new theme. It's a new year, so it's 1988 this time, rather than 87. So each of his books will be another year. And this deals with the impact of of teenage suicide. Um, And it's brilliantly done. Mm. brilliantly done it's i mean yes of course it's dark but there is humor there too of course in this cast of characters and and the the wonderful community that he he writes about and his hometown um but jonathan congratulations on in anticipation of the release of another brilliant book yes so we hope you celebrate in style tomorrow we do uh two more books coming out from hobeck uh, this month yes we've got a busy month actually so we've got um uh next one is bodies in the water by aj abberford yeah um so if you like to travel to malta you you can't or indeed you libya the, the deserts of libya or the, <laughs> the middle of the mediterranean on a on a on a refugee boat sounds you know. quite well not that bit but well no that, that's not particularly appealing but 
it is such a brilliant series. And yeah. this is the first of we're, we're releasing three in quick succession uh, over the next few months. And we are thrilled with those books. We love them. I mean, it's just up right up my street. I love, uh, you know, sprawling international theory. George Zamet series, it's called. And George is this portly, you know, if he can get away with not doing it, he will try to get away with not doing it kind of policeman from, from Malta. Reminds who, me of someone. Who's, nine, yeah, 90% uh, honest, uh, but with enough grey to be able to w- operate in a, quite a dodgy sort of environment of uh, international criminal syndicates, uh, bent senior police officers, and international terrorism. It's, I can't, I, you know, it's just such fun. Um, brilliantly done. So congratulations to uh, AJ, uh, as we call him, but real name, Tony. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we'll probably have a competition as to, can you find out the identity of our of our mystery author. <laughs> uh, and then the third book the is... The third one is The Next in the Quirk Files. So Pad- Ver- Verity Vanishes. Yes, they're back. From A.B. Uh, from um, a. Morgan. I keep calling her Ali because that's how we say yeah, it. Yeah, she's Ali to us or uh, book I'm, child. And I'm just um, working through the technical side of the uh, the audio book. And as ever, these things take a lot longer, but hopefully we can get that out roughly the same time. I'll, I'll push through this week. So my jobs this week... Well, I've given you, I've given you a, a job as well that's sort of urgent, haven't I? Hawk. Yeah, I've got to proofread a manuscript, 450 pages, before I go off to Scotland on Friday morning. I've got to get uh, Verity Vanages and its predecessor throttled into the system, which I, I've almost done with throttle, but there was something, a uh, little snag that got in the way. Basically, get those done. And I've got various other things to do as well. So it's a busy week for me. You've got a monstrously busy week. You've got a project on at the moment. Yeah, it's a crazy. separate project. That's, the deadline is Friday, so I have to do that by Friday. So that's yeah. going to be tough. I've got lots of um, extra curricular stuff too. So uh, middle son who's got his um, GCSE art show this afternoon, this evening. Are we, are we going to that? Um, just me and him, actually. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I wanted to see it. Oh, and then on Wednesday, no, so Thursday, he's <laughs> in a... didn't really. On <laughs> Thursday, the same child is in a play. He's in The, the Crucible, Crucible by Arthur Miller. So we're going to watch that, and you welcome into that. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm going to bring an electric fan, though, because it's going to be super mega hot. <laughs> it and will be hot. Sc- school theatres and halls are just terrible places when, when the windows are shut and... It's 34 degrees outside. So uh, we're doing that. But I'm off to the uh, Open Championship at St Andrews uh, for the final day on Sunday. But I'm going up on Friday um, playing golf with my sons um, in the Southern Highlands um, on Saturday. And then we're going over to St Andrews for that day, uh, which should be amazing because the 150th anniversary of the of the championship or the 150th holding of the of the. Uh, of the open i've been to a number as a as a journalist uh this is my first time as a as a as a pleasure seeker and a, and a viewer which is nice because working the open is exhausting because it's m- tramping miles across the the dunes uh, to uh to get to wherever you need to be yeah it sounds fun oh i loved it i mean i loved covering it don't get me wrong um but you just didn't like tramping it. I've never been to St Andrews in terms of actually watching the Open in person. I've been to St Andrews, but I've never been uh, while it's on. So this is huge. Tiger Woods, all those sort of people are going to be there. And you could always get Tiger Woods on the podcast. 
I tried to get Tiger Woods on BBC News um, during the Ryder Cup in 2006 at the K Club uh, when I was producing our news output from there. You tried doing that. Six bodyguards will jump you. Really? Honestly, Even yeah, if I batter my eyelashes. My, my, my um, reporter at the time was absolutely aghast that I couldn't stop the buggy that was carrying Tiger Woods and his six bodyguards. You, know, you didn't make enough effort. You should have thrown yourself in front of it. And just like, um, and, but, you know, former President Bill Clinton was in the buggy behind it. I mean, his Secret Service guards would have shot me on the spot if I tried <laughs> to physically impose, you know, as they were crossing the, the River Liffey on a bridge. I mean, it was crazy. So, um, no, Tiger Woods is almost completely unapproachable um, to anybody, actually. And this has always been the big bugbear for the players, the other players, because he brings his own huge entourage, so certainly at the height of his fame. And I, I was covering the Open, you know, when he was the best player in the world and winning everything. So there's that factor. Um, but the fact is, he's just not very sociable. Um, no. He doesn't talk to his fellow competitors. He doesn't allow people to in, you know. And when maybe he, he's shy. And and for instance, interviews, he will only grant one interview in the first two rounds to the BBC, for instance. So they have to pick their time as to when uh, when's appropriate. Well, okay, maybe that's shooting a bit high. The Tiger Woods on the Hobcast. I can get you. Well, I I reckon. I tell you who I won't get. There's a very famous golfer called Lee Westwood, who's a former world number one. Oh, is he the one who plays on Christmas Day? No, I don't think oh, so. But Lee one? Westwood is from um, Nottinghamshire. And I went up to um, interview him uh, at Royal St. George's. And I said, Lee, any chance of a quick word? for and, and Just to put this in context. The players during the practice rounds, when they finish their practice rounds at the Open Championship, are obliged to speak to the media. If they have a request, like I put in, any chance of he told me to, well, I started with F. Anyway, it's not very nice. This is a, someone who proudly told a golf magazine many years ago that he's never read a book. Oh well, he's no good for the hobcast anyway. Then. Well, that's what I was thinking. It'd be funny to have somebody who's completely anti-literature <laughs> on the program. So, what are you going to ask him? What books have you not read? Yeah, I mean, you know, Lee Westwood. I mean, a lot of people like him. Personally, I don't after that experience, but then. That's, you know, that's my, you can, you can only find as you, well, see as you find or whatever the phrase is, you know what I mean. It's one of your made up ones. No, it's not. <laughs> I, I just, it's just, I think I've got it the wrong way around or something. Anyway, I think we've uh, digressed and we've kept you. Uh, They're asleep. Waiting for the, <laughs> for the end jingle far too long. So uh, it just remains for me, Adrian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. To say thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Next week we have a mystery guest. We are still working on who that is going to be. Yes, yeah, so mystery guest readers we don't know yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are. We're looking forward to speaking to a mystery guest next week. Uh, the other issue is, is where are we going to record it from? Shall I do it from the Open Championship and just talk to you from from here when, like we did last week when you were in Wales? Well, in we, we might have to. Yes, we might have to do a remote. Um, Something I said, call in the business a simulrec. A simulrec? Yeah, simultaneous recording. Simulrec? That sounds like a cocktail. Yeah, I'll explain what involves in a simulrec. I say that for every word I've never but heard. I bet it's never been used in any form of crime literature about journalism. 
But there you go. It should be next time. If you're listening, Holly and Sarah, there's a challenge for you. Get Simulrex in your next Absolutely. book. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Take a look at our website for all details of everything Hobeck, www.hobeck.net. And uh, it remains for us to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please subscribe to the Hobcast Book Show if you haven't already. It does mean a great deal to us. Uh, but from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And we would like to wish you a wonderful and... Creative Week. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.